several weeks ago, our eldership made the decision that a little bit of a difference in our time of services on today would in fact be the case, and that has now arrived. And certainly we're so thankful that God has seen fit to bless us with the opportunity to assemble on this afternoon at this hour. I know that there are many who are making other plans and are making other particular selections and choices, and we're certainly honored and thankful that each of, each of you have been able to come here with us today. Not only our membership, but our visitors and guests are, uh, certainly as well. And we want each of you to feel welcome and always invited to come back and be with us at any opportunity that you might have to be with us. You may be a bit puzzled by the title of the lesson this afternoon, especially given this is the Church of Christ. But nonetheless, I thought it'd be appropriate to give some reflective thought to it, and you may begin to wonder, is that word in the Bible? Could it be that the Word of God itself makes some description of, or at least some information pertinent to, what is called Hanukkah? And the answer is yes. And this afternoon, we'll be somewhat direct in the sense of using some aspects of the Word of God to at least cast a spotlight upon some of the features connected to it. And may I suggest, it is a rather amazing faith-building consideration, it would seem. This opening slide is one that I hope we'll use somewhat quickly simply to, to note the following. I know that the employment of a calendar is not only familiar, but you and I do it so often and regularly that we perhaps give it very little attention. But yet, if you have looked at at least some calendars over the last little while, you may well have observed something about the month of December, which may be a little unusual. And so I have the next slide. I realize the writing at the bottom perhaps is far too small for you to read from where you are. But here's a calendar. It's, in fact, printed right off the Internet. It's the month of December this year, so the current month in which we are. But at the bottom, it lists the observances and holidays that are to be recognized in this month. And, in fact, if you read through that, you'll notice that the one listed on December the 7th is not only Pearl Harbor Day, but Hanukkah, first day of Hanukkah. And then it goes on to notice that the last day of Hanukkah is the 15th. In fact, on our refrigerator at the house, there's a calendar in which the 7th is highlighted as the first day of Hanukkah. Again, you may well have a calendar in your house in which that is highlighted. You may wonder, I wonder what that holiday is. Again, the Pearl Harbor Day, Christmas, Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve, all of them we recognize in December. But what's this one? Well, perhaps you're familiar with it, may well have had associates or comrades that in fact have much to do with that as well but I thought this afternoon especially in light of our interest in the word of God what does the Bible have to say about this and where does it come from for the next few moments in brevity we shall in fact try to piece together some of those features in such a way that I hope that'll be intriguing and so let me step back to that previous slide and remind each of us that in the present calendar year first day of Hanukkah was on the 7th of December, beginning at sunset that day. And the last day terminated, which is past for us, of course, but at nightfall on December the 15th. And so, you may well know of those who celebrated during that time, who in fact engaged in various activities, such as the lighting of candles and other things. I wonder what the significance was for those that observed it. What connection does it have to the Bible? Let's go past that calendar now and simply begin like this. I'm going to trek through a little bit of biblical history for the moment so that 
when we arrive at the next few moments in the lesson, we'll be prepared to appreciate that connection to Hanukkah. Let me begin by saying the word Hanukkah does not occur in the Bible. So if you're looking for that particular word, it isn't there. But a moment ago, it was read for us from John chapter 10, verses 22 and 23. And in that passage, we have the observance of what is recognized as the Hanukkah. I wonder what led to that passage. What is it that provided the background for it? And to what significance did the Old Testament point when you and I look at some of the following elements of history? Some of the first parts of that slide are, again, rather easy to appreciate. You and I are very comfortable with many aspects of Israelite history when it comes to the Bible. In particular, we know a lot about the early history, how that there was Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We well understand how that there came a time when those people went into Egypt and they stayed there for a long time in captivity. But finally, by virtue of those plagues and the great power of God, they were brought forth and they journeyed, of course, for 40 years in the wilderness and came to the land of Canaan, the land of promise. You and I well know they stayed in that land of promise for, again, several hundred years. But finally, due to their disobedience, they were taken out of that land. And so in the later parts of the Old Testament, you remember they were taken to captivity. Here were God's people that were forcibly removed and taken to Babylon. Some were taken to Assyria. But these people, you see, were forcibly taken from that land that God had promised initially to them. Could I go ahead and note this, though? They were blessed by God to be able to return. We read about that in the book of Ezra. We highlight it in the book of Nehemiah. And so it was that God allowed the opportunity for them and the kindness of the Persian monarch that they would be able to return, and so they did. In fact, some of the later Old Testament books remind us, books like Zechariah, books like Malachi, books you see like Haggai, they had returned. But you see, at this point, we reach an interesting position. The Old Testament ends. The book of Malachi has now come... And yet the book of Matthew will not pick up for about 400 years. What happened in that span of 400 years? Are there some things which, though no Bible books were written then, that in fact were pertinent to the final understanding of the nature of the New Testament? The answer to that is yes. And may I say that one of the things that transpired in that time will be the core of our reminder, our little lesson this afternoon. And so to build up to it, let me recall with you the book of Daniel. Daniel is a majestic presentation of many elements of history which will have bearing upon the features of our discussion shortly. Needless to say, my description will not cover that in detail. A whole series, in fact, would be a pertinent thing. But could I remind you some easy things that you could remember with me? There came a time at Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian king had a dream. There was a head of gold in that dream. He saw an image that was, of course, made of metal. But beyond the head of gold, there was a breast area and arms of silver. There was furthermore a midsection of brass. Legs were of iron, and the feet were a mixture of iron and clay. God revealed to Daniel what the various elements in that image represented. and They were kingdoms. So might we take note, they were not particular individuals. They represented vast kingdoms of men. The first one was the Babylonian kingdom, led by Nebuchadnezzar. 
The second, we're readily told, was the Medo-Persian Empire. At that point on the slide, could I ask you to jump to its very bottom statement? You see, that's the better known element in the book of Daniel in terms of what we're about to describe. But in chapter 7, we encounter another. This time, Daniel was the one that was given the following information. Daniel saw a vision. In that vision, he saw several beasts. The first one was a lion with eagle's wings. Can you imagine how unusual that would look? A lion with the wings of an eagle? But not only that, he then readily after that saw a bear that was raised up on one side. And maybe we begin to wonder, what did that represent? What was the information God was sharing with Daniel? This next slide will journey even more forward because there are certain things we are immediately told in the book of Daniel. First, that golden head, again in that image, that was Babylon. But that was also the first of those matters in chapter 7. The lion with eagle's wings, we are told that was the Babylonian Empire. What about the second one, the bear raised up on one side? Note, raised up on one side indicating that one of the elements consistent with that kingdom would rise to greater significance and rise to more prominence than the other one. The kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. The Persians would rise to higher prominence. They would rise, you see, to higher consideration and significance. And so Daniel foretold all of that as God revealed it to him. But at this point, our lesson becomes very intriguing in the following sense. What about the third element? There was another element to Daniel's dream. There was a leopard with four wings and four heads. Now again, that's odd. That's extremely strange to imagine a leopard with four heads. But yet in that sense, you and I know that God was revealing through Daniel not only various pieces of pertinent information, but He was foretelling future events. Remember, the third element in that previous consideration was the brassy section on that slide. Daniel saw the following pieces of information. Two years elapsed, and Daniel had a vision in which he saw a ram with two horns. Again, you notice that one of the horns was more notable than the other one, and this is another representation of the Medes and Persians, with the Persians becoming more prominent. And then almost immediately, Daniel saw a he-goat. And you may ask, who is the he-goat representing? I follow that simply by noting this, the bottom of that slide. You appreciate that four horns, not only is that information provided to us, but a mighty horn arose out of the bunch. Now remember, God was foretelling future events, and we're going to make it back to Hanukkah shortly. But all of this is not only a background, but it's information that often sheds a great deal of light on those 400 years, as well as this following understanding. What does all of that mean? A he-goat? A leopard with four heads? The considerations touching those other unusual matters that you and I just noted? Here's the understanding. Here's the representation. The Greek Empire, which was again that third one we had noted, one of the greatest kings, the greatest monarchs to ever have lived was known as Alexander the Great. In the consideration of what we've just read, he was the he-goat. 
He raced from west to east, and in so doing, he conquered everything in sight. Alexander became the monarch of the Greek Empire when he was young. He was only 20. Most of the time, a 20-year-old hasn't been schooled enough, experienced enough, and ready to take the leadership and lead a nation in great triumphs, and yet he did. He conquered the entirety of the known world. In fact, this map that I would now, in fact, invite you to notice simply looks like this. We'll revisit that earlier in a moment. There's a picture of the ancient Greek Empire. Consider how vast it is. All the way from what we would recognize as really just the western part of Italy, all the way to what would be the boundary of modern-day China. Fact is, in that ancient era, when there was not nearly the features characteristic of some of the more modern matters today, Alexander conquered all of it, the he-goat. Revisit that previous slide with me, though, and note this. The Greek Empire was known for its brass. And remember, that was the third section in that image that Nebuchadnezzar had seen. That was a representation of this empire, and Daniel's later information leads me to note this. A leopard? Leopards are known for speed, for agility, for quickness, and that's exactly the kind of conquering characteristic that Alexander had. He raced and overwhelmed every opponent. In a short span of only 12 years, he conquered everything that was to be conquered in his day. Isn't that fascinating? May I continue that, though, by noting this one. Near the bottom of that slide, one horn on the he-goat. Again, consideration of the prominence that went with him. But you'll notice the horn was broken. Alexander died at an extremely young age. He was only, he was only in, his, in his early 30s. I would ask you to contemplate the breaking of the horn, what did Daniel say would happen next? This next slide invites you to note the following. That beast that you and I noted earlier was such that when the horn was broken, four arose. Remember, that's what God revealed. And after Alexander died, the Greek empire was divided into four parts, four sections just as the Word of God had revealed that it would be. I've listed for you what the four sections were. You'll notice that there was Thrace and Bithynia. There was Syria in the east. There was Egypt and there was Macedonia. And each one was ruled over by various of those that had been the generals in Alexander's army. Now, our interest is primarily only going to be on the Seleucids. You know, may notice that's the second one I listed. Syria in the east, known as the Seleucids. Again, that word doesn't occur in the book of Daniel, but the emphasis and the consideration of what was to occur by virtue of it is, and here's what we learn. Remember, Daniel had been told, and he was revealed the following fact. There arose a little horn out of that one that arose. The little horn, who was it? May I suggest to you Antiochus Epiphanes, the name you'll notice at the bottom of that slide. You probably are not as familiar with that name. For reasons that might become evident in a moment, he, though, played a tremendous historical role in the development of that 400 years. This next slide 
begins the following explanation. The word epiphanies means the manifest one. And may I say that this man was a very arrogant sort of person. History records that he wanted the attention directed exclusively on himself. So much so that he commanded over matters rather directly to the point where he wanted the attention almost arrogantly directed to him. And he absolutely despised the Jews. He hated them. In his detesting of them, here are some of the things he did to them. Remember, he was appointed, became the ruler over that area wherein those Jews lived. He slaughtered them rather inhumanly. He often, in fact, entered into meaningless wars against them, demanding their participation, and in so doing, caused them a great deal of grief. Not only was his hatred directed that way, you may recall the Jews, of course, looked up mightily to their temple. After all, that was what the place was where they would worship. It was the place wherein they could direct affairs connected to the God whom they considered supreme. Antiochus considered it a very desirable thing to desecrate that temple. You'll notice on the slide I list for you some of the things he did to it. Can you imagine the anguish in the mind of a Jew who would see prostitutes being brought into and allowed to remain in what had been the temple? And not only that, he erected an altar of the Greek god Zeus right in the temple. Now remember, the temple was supposed to be dedicated to the exclusive and sole worship of Yahweh. And yet here he had erected this uh, statue, this idolater statue of Zeus. And I suppose the final matter was, can you imagine the specialness and the holiness connected to the altar of the temple? It's the place where those burnt offerings and the various sacrifices which God had commanded was offered, and yet He took a pig, several of them, and slew them and put them right on the altar. Now, of course, the pig was one of the unclean animals to the Jews, and yet for Him to do that in public view and spectacle, you can imagine the anguish and horror in the mind of Jews. Needless to say, there were some Jews specifically Mattathias and his sons, who reached a breaking point. On one occasion, in this little village not too far from Jerusalem, Mattathias was the priest, of course, who was serving at that time, and Antiochus rolled into town with his particular entourage of soldiers and otherwise, and so he gathered the people at the location of the temple in that place and proceeded to do these sorts of things and gave this order to the people, slay the pigs. Of course, Antiochus, giving that order, Mattathias, the priest, was expected to submit. He refused. In fact, he came forward, he and his sons, and they basically not only refused to do that which had been commanded of them, but they basically arrested those men of Antiochus. Guerrilla warfare began to proceed and would last for decades. It lasted a long, long time as those that were favorable to Judaism defended these things against Antiochus and his efforts. On that slide, I quickly would invite you to notice that in Daniel 8.25 and Daniel 11.21, 
there's a prophecy that that little horn Antiochus would be broken. His reign would not persist onward. And finally, in 164 B.C., a little over 150 years before the birth of our Lord in Bethlehem, that guerrilla warfare ultimately led to the defeat of Antiochus in that area. And those Jews, or those favorable to it, in fact, won. They recaptured Jerusalem. They set about to rededicate the temple. And that rededication would last for a number of days. In fact, history records something rather interesting and almost fantastic. They had very little oil available to them at the time of the rededication. And yet, it was multiplied over the span of over a week so that they had enough oil, it turns out, that they could ultimately keep those matters lit for eight days. And that slide closes like this. To this day, the Jews celebrate that rededication of the temple, that overwhelming of Antiochus' forces, the recentering of the matters of Jerusalem and the temple, and they celebrate it in what's called a festival of lights, also known as Hanukkah. And thus, when you and I know folks who will take about an, a week's period and they will light candles as a remembrance of this feature, could I now point you back to John chapter 10? May I again read verses 22 and 23 and listen to the connection to what we've just noted. And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. So you'll notice again some of the characteristic elements, the feast of the dedication. Dedication of what? Rededication of the temple. This was the Jews celebrating this particular matter that had been occurring again for about 150 years. And in so doing, it was a circumstance reminding us that is not one of the feasts that had been initially commanded in the book of Exodus. Notice that was unleavened bread and the feast of Pentecost and the feast of ingathering. This one was none of the three. This was this feast. You and I have just noted that our modern-day appreciation relates to Hanukkah. And you may notice the word Hanukkah literally means festival of lights. In other words, the connection is right back to John chapter 10, verses 22 and 23. It's somewhat interesting to notice then that our Jewish friends that might well then take that as an opportunity to celebrate Hanukkah they light candles and have specially worded prayers. And they also engage in other somewhat activities reminding of a period of rededication. I would say, though, and in all of that, could I ask that you and I not look past verse 23? We have cast a spotlight on verse 22. What does the next verse again say? And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. The second word of that verse is the word Jesus. And could I point out that you and I are not going to celebrate Hanukkah for the purpose of some, something connected to what God would demand of us today. For that particular celebration is not connected to your culture or mine, but what is connected to you and me in the most unfathomable of ways is Jesus the Christ. Go back to make a few comments with me. Antiochus thought he was the great one. Remember his arrogance? That he wanted to be the single one who was lifted high above all. 
And yet Jesus is not just one who claims that. He is that. He is the great Son of God. Do we not read in John chapter 1, The Word became flesh and dwelt among men. It is the very one in John 1 verse 1 that we read about, who from the very beginning He was the Word. We also notice in 1 John 5 verse 20 that He is the God. Although Antiochus claimed to be great, Jesus really is. He is the penultimate one. Was He not called Emmanuel in Matthew 1 23? which means God with us. As you and I give thought to this Feast of Dedication, may I also point out this interesting historical note as well. In Genesis 22, verse 18, God made a statement to Abraham in the ancient era, Because thou hast obeyed my voice, all nations shall be blessed through you. Now that promise is one that was asserted and declared to Abraham. And you and I might now notice that, of course, over the streaming character of time, the families of all people, honored and blessed, but a capacity of linkage to Abraham. But you and I know that there came some very amazing times in the Old Testament era when God's people acted so rebelliously and acted so foolishly that they nearly were brought to demise. Think about the days of Esther. There the decree was every Jew on earth was to be slaughtered on the 13th day of the 12th month. And only by the great preservation of Esther, Esther 4.14, you and I remember the power and beauty of that statement. Mordecai said, Thou art come into the kingdom for such a time as this. The third point on that slide. Antiochus felt as if, again, he was great, but that there was a light spoken of, this festival of lights. Might you and I remember, Jesus really is the light of the world. It's not merely just a claim. He said, didn't he, in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He really is the light. Finally, isn't it interesting? that just as the Old Testament had foretold that there would be an Antiochus, that, that, that goat, uh, that horn, if you please, but that it would be broken, the Old Testament also foretold that there would be the Lamb of God. John the Baptist put it like this in John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Here was John, who, by way of his revelation to him, he exactly stated this Jesus was the Lamb of God. Aren't you and I thankful that the Lamb has come? In Revelation chapter 5, verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. This particular characteristic this afternoon brings me in to note the following conclusion. I know that we've attempted very briefly to give some thought to Hanukkah. But could I point out that we have highlighted God's promises? That happened exactly by way of what was foretold by the prophet Daniel. We've also highlighted God's providence in that it occurred, leading, of course, to the Christ. And finally, could we not highlight God's faithfulness? He always keeps His promises. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness. But as long suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
that wording you see of Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Among this assembly this afternoon, could we be reminded then that though there are those who give thought to Hanukkah, it actually has a basis in statements in the, in the book of Daniel and also the book of John. But you and I can realize we serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. We're not interested in giving attendance to these matters of Old Testament era. The new era has come. That old law has been taken away, and we serve beneath the blessed cross of Jesus the Christ. If there's anyone in this assembly who perhaps needs to make a change in life, a change to come to the Lord as the light of your life, how honored we'd be to encourage, to assist, and to help. To become a Christian, you need to believe in Jesus as a Son of God and repent of your sins. Confess His name and be baptized. If you, however, have become a Christian at some time, but as of today are not faithful, oh, the Lord wants you back. He wants you in faithful service at His side. And we'd be honored to make note of your repentance and confession today, and that we would also be happy to pray along with you. If we could be of assistance, Brother Don has chosen this song of encouragement. We invite you to come while we stand and while we sing.